welcome to episode two of season seven of Relay SA, which is a connected conversation about student affairs in Canada. My name is Adam Kewen, and I'm here with my co-host with the most. Nadia Rosemond. Thanks for tuning in for episode two. This guest uh, is like, a, I think, not that we have favorites, but it was a real pleasure for us to meet with um, this person because they have taught us throughout our, you know, um, your PhD, my master's program at OISE, uh, Professor Steph Waterman. Yeah, this was a real treat, and full disclosure, full disclosure, Chris Rodman is my supervisor in my PhD program, so it was, I was a little bit nervous going in, <laughs> uh, asking some of the questions we were asking, but I was, um, I mean, one of the, the attributes that I really appreciate about Chris Rodman is that she is uh, a straight shooter, she tells you what's on her mind, um, and she doesn't hold back, and I think you'll notice that in this interview that she really is honest and forthright about her experience and her insights about the world of student affairs and the work that we have to do. Yes. And, uh, pay extra attention to some name dropping of the people that like, as she was pursuing her career, um, studying some people that she encountered, uh, that oftentimes is referenced in the work that we do. Right. So, um, that was an interesting thing to listen to during the interview. Yeah, I hope you enjoy it and uh, enjoy. Thank you. I will declare that I'm not the type to have any yes. It's worth all the shares. The number one podcast is student affairs. Wanna hear what they have to say, along with all the guests that are popping on the way. Without further delay, it's me, they, yes, they. Okay, and we're recording. Yay! Okay, so can you tell us your name? Stephanie Waterman. Hi, Stephanie Waterman. Hi. And, <laughs> and what is your current position and where do you work? Okay, well, uh, I work here at OEC. I'm the program coordinator. Well, I don't know if you call it that. I coordinate the program stream for student development student services here at higher ed. I'm a faculty member. Okay. Amazing. And I guess tell us a bit about your journey, I guess, to this point. Uh, today I noticed one of your old tweets about being a proud hashtag first gen uh-huh. student. Yep. And you started post-secondary as a part-time student. So tell us a bit about from that journey throughout your graduate experience. Okay. Um, so... Um... So both my parents were impacted by the residential schools. My father in Canada, my mother in the United States. Um, But they really valued education. And my father was one of those voracious readers. The thicker the novel, the better. Mm. Um, uh, Do you remember James Mishner? He used to be a very famous novelist. Anyway, he was one of my favorite, my father's favorite authors and would just sit and read. So we were really encouraged to read. And I learned later in his life that he wanted to be a high school English teacher. He would have been the best high school English teacher because he had this authority about him. He was a lacrosse coach and, you know, grown men. He wasn't a big man, would just do what he said. (laughs) So, you know, I, I don't know if other people could have done that. Um, and in my mother's family, um, Charles Dachshund, who was Oneida, 
uh, graduated from Hampton Institute, which is now Hampton University, mm-hmm. and it began as a um, a school for newly enha- um, freed slaves. So Hampton is on a peninsula in Virginia, and they had gathered there after they were freed. So um, with some good intentions, uh, a vocational school was started there, and it ended up having indigenous students along with black students there together, even though it was against the law to have them both together. You weren't supposed to mix any races at the time. Um, So anyway, I think it was 1915. I have a book with his picture in it. I'm not sure where it is, but um, he graduated with an engineering degree, Charles Dachshund, and he came back to central New York where my family is from, Onondaga, and he was an engineer for the railroad. So he had a really good job. Um, he was able to provide for the family, build a house, um, all, all sorts of stuff that you know people didn't have at the time. So education was highly valued, even though my grandparents did not instill a love of education mm-hmm. um, in their children and making sure that they graduated from high school. Um, but you know, and my mother in particular really valued that. So there was that sense of the value of education and thinking um, in my family. I'm the youngest oh. by a lot. <laughs> so it was very nice to feel like an only child once the others got out of my way. <laughs> they kept coming back though. You know, they Always. go get a job, Always. Yeah. go to university and come back. Like, ah. It's my time now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, that reading and, and time with my father and stuff really, um, I think, influenced my my love of reading in particular. And I read before I went to school because I was the youngest. Okay. So my sister taught me how to read um, and some other things. Um, so in high school, my sister was going to Syracuse University. And um, she had a job in the EOP office, high, Higher Education Opportunity Program, which is part of the TRIO programs for first-generation students um, oh, it's okay. a federal program in the United States. And she had a summer job in a residence hall. And mm. I would stay in her room and go swimming with her and uh, eat in the dining hall, which I thought was fabulous. Yeah. And you just keep <laughs> taking food, you know. <laughs> and um, there's tennis courts and all sorts of fun things there. And you got to meet a whole bunch of new different people. So I knew I would be going to university. I wasn't sure what I was going to do, but I had that experience being on the campus mm. um, and meeting all these interesting people. And, you know, I sat in on some of her classes, so psych and these other classes that, you know, were really super interesting. So I kind of, I knew that's where I wanted to be. I just wasn't sure how yeah. I was going to be and, and what I was going to do with it. <laughs> so then so, did you know you wanted to go because you did your BA at Syracuse also right? I did um, I wanted to go there because I could live at home or be close to home that's nice and yeah. go home back and forth so I started at University College so that's a picture of my sister and I we uh, were featured in some ads actually for University College which is um, like a college for adults within Syracuse University okay so classes were at night, and advising and everything was um, after hours. 
And uh, so I took a couple classes, I think the intro to psych and the intro English uh, through University College part-time. Um, and then I applied uh, full-time. And I majored in psych and I took the, the ed courses so I could be a teacher, but I did my teaching practice in the infant room. Oh. Because I wanted to work with little ones. Okay. Um, and then I was part-time, I mean, depending on financial aid. I mean, the financial aid was just a bear every single semester. And I married early. I married at 19, um, which at the time meant I wasn't eligible for um, financial aid as an independent person. Oh, you had to be a certain age or something. Anyway, it was really, really tough. Yeah. Um, and when I graduated, I got... Um, work in nursery schools but they had no benefits oh. so I can't do that so I got a part no I got a full-time job at Syracuse University to use the remitted tuition I was in the law school Ooh. and I got I started a master's in social work because people tell me their problems they just <laughs> naturally like yeah a stranger so here's a story about <laughs> what happens to me. I go to pick up my dry cleaning. Right? People yeah. do that all the time, yes. right? You go up. The woman behind the counter says, I'm going to New York City this weekend. I go, oh, cool, that, that'll be fun. She says, she tells me this story about when her father was in Vietnam, he had fathered a child. And that half-sibling is in New York City, and she's going to go meet her half-sibling. <laughs> and... Her mother found out, and it, the family is just torn apart. Some are, like, in support of her, her father. Others are, like, absolutely angry at her father. Anyway, she's going to go down and meet this person herself. I just went to pick up my dry <laughs> cleaning <laughs> with my little ticket, you know, like. <laughs> she wanted to tell someone. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, lots, lots and of things And you're probably, your aura, your face is like, I could tell this person they won't get mad. I guess so. I don't know what it is. But anyway. So I thought a social work degree <laughs> would be a perfect match. But then I realized I don't want to do that every day for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. So I stopped that. And I, I worked at SU, Syracuse University, um, right up until I started my, um, my doctorate, well, my master's. I was working there while I did my master's. And I worked in 11 different departments. So I was a librarian for a little while. I was... Um, in several research offices, which I really, really liked. Uh, I was in the EOP office maybe twice. I bounced all around, had my kids during that time, so um, I wasn't working for a little while. Cause my, yeah. my youngest in particular, I, ha- I was on bed rest, and then she had um, she was really very early and had surgery, so stayed home with her. And while I was part-time, too, at Syracuse, I, I did transcriptions for researchers. So I could be home with the kids and listen to really super interesting things during the day. That's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And um, the last office I worked in was, it was a center for instructional development. So the, um, professional development for faculty, surveys are us, you know, like the exit interview and the food service. Um, it changed to center for inst- instructional something or another. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I was part-time then. And because I was part-time on a grant, I was told, 
but we're not going to get renewed, so we can't keep you, so you're going to have to look for work. So I did, and I actually got two part-time jobs, and then our grant was renewed. So one summer and into, like, the month of September, I had three part-time jobs. Wow. And the whole point of being part-time was to be home with the kids. Right. Oh, that makes, yes, that makes sense. But you got three. Anyway, <laughs> I got through that alive. Um, and while I was there, okay, so being in all those different departments across campus, yeah, I knew somebody in every building. Oh, that's you know, true. I knew uh, custodial. I knew other people I had worked with as staff, um, faculty members who had moved around, administrators. So that if a student came to me with an issue, I could call somebody and say, "Hey, this this is going on with this student. Mm-hmm. Who's a good person to put them in contact with?" Mm-hmm. Custodians know a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they do. Right? <laughs> they do. So do department secretaries. Mm-hmm. So. Um, that was really very helpful in getting support for people with this like underground kind of network that wasn't formal in any way. Okay, so at the Center for Supportive Teaching and Learning, um, we did the federal report for the NCAA and National Center for Education Statistics where you get the IPEDS report. Mm. I'm not sure if you know, okay. So the federal government the U.S. federal government requires all these statistics, <coughs> gender, race, um, what kind of um, institution they're at, so like two-year doctoral degree granting, race, everything. They want to know everything. So that office did the report for, the, for Syracuse University, and um, I worked on it. And every year I would get really upset because the report would say there were not enough indigenous students, mm. on new students on campus to be included in the, the report. There wouldn't be statistically oh, wow. correct, right? So um, I personally knew many more who were on campus, but because it's um, a federally defined cohort for the report, we were erased. So mm. to be in that report, it was a first-time, full-time student who entered in the fall. Um, so like me, I started part-time. Yeah. Many of us transfer. They're stopping it going. So um, You're not included in the report. Right, completely erased. And is that where the asterisk idea came yeah. from, which mm-hmm. later resulted in beyond the asterisk? Like right. The book? So I think uh, John Gard- Gardner is the one who uh, used the term in the literature first, but yeah. So um, that would just make me mad. And at the time in the 90s, the literature was very deficit. So if a student was successful, they were usually a suburban student of somebody who had assimilated into white middle-class America if they were indigenous. But, you know, a lot of, they go home all the time. Yeah. You know, they, they want to learn their language. I mean, really awful stuff. So I would get upset every year. And at the time, I was working on a master's um, in liberal studies from State University of New York, Empire State College, which is a non-traditional institution. It's developed for older adults. So the semester starts like October, so that as parents, you can get your own children off to university, then start yours, right? So a lot of it's online, some of it's residency. It's really cool. And I felt like the one-on-one with the faculty was much better than any of my undergraduate Mm. experience. 
So I had planned to write a novel for my thesis, my final project, and I have actually written a novel. Oh. Um, but I was working at CSTL on this report that I got mad at every year. <laughs> so I took a turn, and I did a pilot study that in, for my dissertation, which was on uh, how Onondagas finished their uh, university degrees. So I interviewed a bunch of them and took a methods course, I think, to prepare me. And um, I applied for the doc program at Syracuse and started a long time ago, 90-something. And my advisor was Vincent Tinto. And I, I, I retired to become a full-time student. And I thought, you know, my kids were teenagers, and I thought, this is a good time to do it. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that was a good time to do it. Because with teenagers, you have different issues than you would with little toddlers. So... Um, I don't know. It, it worked out. I, my family helped out, so. Wow. Tinta, what? <laughs> <laughs> God. Well, that's, that's really interesting. So how was, I mean, how was your experience working? I mean, he's a pretty big name, and I feel like at a lot of the <laughs> conferences, there's names that pop up, and in a lot mm -hmm. of the literature, there's these names that continuously pop up, and that's one of them. Right. Um, and so, but I suppose that kind of, washes away when you're in a supervisory relationship with someone it's just you and another person or well, did that enter the space all the time he was not a good advisor or supervisor at all mm -hmm. um and you know he's i challenged him yeah and others have challenged him and i don't know how relevant the his work is today i think a number of us have really worked on showing that breaking away and becoming integrated into the institution isn't how it works for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, there were many times where um, we butted heads and his way of dealing with me was kind of like shrugging and making me explain myself, which really wasn't helpful. Um, so the, it was a strange relationship, yeah. I haven't heard from him in, in a number of years. But I had a couple other people on my committee who were in Cultural Foundations of Education, which, you know, is the foundations of education and kind of on the teacher ed side. And um, they're the ones who really challenged me and helped me work through mm -hmm. some of the um, maybe theoretical issues that I was having. Because at the time, you know, I only had one indigenous teacher in my whole life and he recently passed away I think in October um, and it was for biology Dr. Lloyd Allen and um, you know none in my post-secondary at all and you know we have books about indigenous methodologies now that you can refer to so I didn't have that um, who to work it out with and who to talk, talk it through and I read Brian Brayboy's dissertation literally weeks before I turned in my entire dissertation for approval. So I tried to incorporate that really quickly. Um, and I didn't have any indigenous classmates or colleagues in higher ed, so it was tough. So I have to, I have to give Tinto credit, though, for letting me do that and not mm -hmm. challenge me when I brought in black feminist thought and how I was gonna work that in with indigenous thought, you know, he never 
said don't do that or you have to, you know. You're wrong. You're wrong. Yeah. Right. He never did that. It would have been nice for him to say, oh, that's great. You're on the right track. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he never really discouraged me from doing that. Another family member in the department did, but he didn't. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so you, um, what was the title of your dissertation? Ah, what was the title? Haudenosaunee College Graduates, A Complex Journey, something like that. So I interviewed 12 Haudenosaunee who had completed degrees. And I wanted uh, completed as opposed to successful, those who are moving along the journey, to say, you know, this is how I did it. Mm. Because one way I did it was to treat it like a job, Mm. 9 to 5, get up in the morning, go there, do my studies, class, swim, come home. And um, I kind of wondered if others did the same thing. They pretty much did. Hmm, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yep. So there's a few, I'm sure we're skipping a few steps yeah. because <laughs> um, uh, then at some point you made the move north to Toronto to work yeah. at OISE. So tell us about your process to to join joining us here at OISE. Or yeah, coming, coming to Canada. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's a big step in yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so after I graduated, I don't remember if it was 2005 or 2006, I was hired. I was a po- uh, okay. I was a Spencer Foundation postdoc. And uh, the Spencer Foundation is this prestigious um, education foundation. And they fund postdocs and dissertation fellows. And it was to expand my dissertation study. So I was able to do another, an additional 47 interviews of Haudenosaunee. So I was really able to collect uh, some more rich data and include all six nations because I didn't have any Kyugas in in my dissertation study. Okay. So I did some traveling around and collected more data. Um, And part of the stipulations of that is that you don't teach. But I was able to stay at Syracuse and, and work on that. And the following year, we got a new chancellor, Chancellor Nancy Cantor. She came from the University of Illinois. I don't know if you're familiar with, they had, they used to have that terrible mascot, Chief Alinowick. Look it up, it's awful. Um, hmm. But anyway, she was part of the effort to remove that mascot. And I, th- I think she was just driven from there. So she came to Syracuse with, um, an awareness that there were indigenous people there. Mm. And she hired me to be the faculty associate for the brand new native student program to support the students who would come in under the Haudenosaunee Promise Scholarship that she and others developed. And that was a full ride for any Haudenosaunee citizens who were regular admits to the university. So I was able to take my research and work with Regina Jones, who was Oneida, and um, developed this student support program for Syracuse. So that's what I did the second year after I graduated. And uh, part of my task was to educate the institution about Haudenosaunee students so they could support them. So we had workshops with like public safety, which clearly they need right now. I don't know if you've kept up with what's going on there. and like faculty, like chemistry, English, the counseling department. I did 12 workshops that first year in nine months. 
and I fielded a lot of questions. So as a faculty member, I was a faculty appointment. I taught one class each semester. Um, faculty listened to faculty. So when faculty mm. came to me, it was a whole different, like, oh, okay, you know, I'm kind of like, this is based on research, right? So um, I think it was a really smart move on the chancellor to have oh. that academic appointment in addition to supporting the student uh -huh. affairs oh, and student program director. Okay. And then, you know, I went to a ton of meetings, <laughs> um, came to realize that the School of Education was never going to think of me as a tenure-track person. So somebody else was hired there um, in a position that would have been great for me, but and then that person was recruited for somewhere else. And I, through other conversations, I realized this, they're never going to see me in this way. Mm. And they're just going to use me up. Yeah. Oh. So um, I started looking for uh, positions at other institutions, and the one at Rochester opened up, and I went to the University of Rochester, uh, the Warner School of Education, for eight very long years, and I uh, taught in the Student uh, Affairs Department. And then um, I was pretty miserable there. It's a very oppressive environment, um, very segregated city. I always say it's a mean place. And I don't physically appear indigenous, so I can get racism from many different sides because they're really not sure who I am or whose side I'm on. Yeah. And um, I saw the position here, student development, student services, still in my homeland technically, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, five hour drive back to Onondaga, and I thought, well, I'll go for it. And I got it. So here I am. You are. That's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> I think the first time I ever met you was at the at your campus visit. Uh huh. During the student like talk back oh, session. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Just over in the lounge over here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the uncomfortable chairs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can you tell us more about the program that you're a part of here at OISE? Yeah. So um, you know, student affairs as a discipline is is fairly new in Canada. I think. Um, some more programs, master's programs have popped up since I've been here. Um, so it's student development, student services. So I made sure that that was the focus of the program. Okay. So we have an intro course on student development theory that you take with me and an advance that you take with me. And then we have um, the student experience, intro to student affairs. Not everybody has to take that anymore because some people are have a job in student affairs on a daily basis. Yeah. Um, and have had years of experience in it. I remember when I took it as a graduate student thinking, oh, that's what you call that. Or there's a name for that. Right. Or that's why we do uh. that. So I do encourage people to take it even if they've had five years of experience. Um, what are, there's a research methods course. So there's 10 courses that um, students have to take, four of which are required. And you know, what's really unique about the program here is you can take electives anywhere. Yeah, that's what I like yeah, about so it. Yeah, so feminist theory yeah. here or somewhere else or history course or the things like that, I think. Social justice. Or yeah. Adult, yeah. The community yeah. development and the adult ed stuff. Mm -hmm. Lots to choose from. Yeah, lots to choose from. And I really encourage students to um, try to be proactive in thinking about those electives. Um, I wish we had more faculty, and we are searching for a person for 
to help me out so that we could offer some of the more maybe fun things like um, higher ed in the media. You know, people have this image in their head of what universities like, and that's really fed by media. Yeah, yeah. I took a course like that in my master's here with Tony Chambers. Oh, cool! Yeah, yeah, Uh very cool. We watched movies and um, television shows and talked about representation of higher education and popular culture. Oh yeah, it's either like Greek House, you know, like Greek fraternity energy, or. Like another extreme. It's so interesting. Mm-hmm. I tried to get us to watch Legally Blonde, but no one was oh. no one was up for it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good Dang. example of it. No, we yeah. watched more more serious films. Okay. <laughs> and really, like in, in movies, it's really American college and university. Right. It's never really... For, for us, it's usually like high school. Like Degrassi was high school, yeah. right? But Or Oxford. Or Oxford, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're you have a demanding teaching load, um, it sounds like, and you're running this program. Um, what are some of the projects that you're also working on? Because what's the research um, side of your of your life? Yes, yeah, so um, up to this point, I've been researching how Indigenous students experience higher ed, but now I'm looking at how institutions support Indigenous students. Mm. So uh, right now, we're looking at the websites of. Indigenous Student Centers or Native American Student Support Units. I visited um, Dartmouth, no, I have to do that. Um, Harvard, Cornell, seems like there's one more. I've interviewed folks from the University of Arizona. I'm going to UMaine in December. (laughs) Please let the weather be nice. (laughs) Um, To see how they work, like, does the staff have have a, a specific philosophy about how they work with Indigenous students? Um, how do they recruit? How do these units work? But also, how are how do they work in relation to the larger institution? And where are they situated? Where they're situated, yeah. right? And physically, where they're situated. Yeah. So at the last Esh, um, one of the presentations had maps of like where the campuses, where the center of campuses, and where the indigenous student center is located. Mm which tends to be like off on the side. Yeah. On the periphery? Or on the, the periphery, yeah. yeah. Or in mm-hmm. the basement. Oh. So you could just walk right by it and not even know it's there. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, and there's so many different directions we could take this. Like the mission statements, do they match the mission statement of the institution? How are they handling the truth and reconciliation tasks, yeah. if they are at all? Um, are they being included in that, that response? Um, bridge programs. Yeah, bridging. Yeah, I mean, th- we could just go in so many different directions. That's so. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. Oh. What is your hope? I guess as you collect this information and bring this to the forefront, what are you hoping that your study and your work, um, w- the impact might be? Mm-hmm. Well, you know. We have to do so much educating and support and advocating on our campuses. And a lot of times, other units say, oh, go to the Indigenous Center. Yeah. When, if every Indigenous student who had an issue had to go to the Indigenous Student Center, they would just be overwhelmed. And many of the staff are overwhelmed. And I think it's really necessary for um, other units to understand how our students navigate mm. and some of the forces that they're navigating against so that they can do this work too. 
but also some recognition of the of the immense work that these units are doing. I mean, just recognition of. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I even remember, I think, reading an article you wrote around returning to home as a source mm-hmm. of motivation and, and resilience for students, and whereas the institutions were trying to prevent that because right. the notion is you come to university, yeah. you sever ties with your family because mm-hmm. now you're a grown-up, et cetera, et cetera, and your research was arguing that actually it's a you should look at it with an asset perspective mm-hmm. and that it's actually a really useful strategy to kind of fill your bucket and connect with family yeah. and re-energize. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think if this is right in the article, folks were trying to get running programs on weekends to get people to stay on campus. Yeah. Oh, and then your argument night. was, why don't you yeah. do it like Sunday or Monday? So mm-hmm. when they return from home, right. it's like a welcome back and let's start mm-hmm. the week as opposed to trying to control people through campus yeah. programming. And I thought that was really... Mm-hmm. That's it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, people will tell me that that's been one of the most impactful articles that they've read. It really make them think. Yeah, where it was like pro. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I remember like what taking your student development theory class. It reminded me of when I was an RA and we had student development theory as a session for RA training, and myself and Jen Gonzalez, we were talking about how one of like the seven vectors I think were like. There's no severing ties from home. My parents are... <laughs> I My mom wanted me to bring my laundry home and, like, come home for food. And, like, mm-hmm. there was no, like, <laughs> no expectation not to go home. Right. Uh, so that was not part of my student development theory. Whereas some people were like... I know some other counterparts were like, yeah, my parents made my room into their office, their gym. It was like, you're gone, you're done. But for <laughs> other people, other, like, cultures, it's like, you're coming back. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. That connection yeah. is core. It's yeah. not something that yeah. That's interesting. Um so as someone who has studied and researched in the United States and you're um at uh an institution in Ontario, mm-hmm. um are there there's a lot more folks I think at the master's level and graduate level doing research on uh Canadian higher education broadly. Um what areas do you think are topics that need some additional research or that we should turn our attention to? Where are the gaps? Oh, there's a lot of gaps. Tell um, us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, students in my classes get upset that there isn't much research on Canadian institutions or post-secondary or student experiences or housing or anything. So we just need to cover all those areas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Any step is a good step. Yeah, kind of right. Mm. Yeah. Right. Um, and uh, the student development theories are based on a Western um, yeah. culture, and this is a Western culture, but it's a little different. So I think we do need to um, just test out these theories and see what kind of Im- different impact they they might have here in a Canadian context with Canadian students, Canadian housing. Um, how dons are picked. I don't know if the hiring is the same as in the U.S., but I'm disturbed that there are so few Indigenous folks in student affairs, like in residence halls and residence life and student life. And it's a problem in the United States, too. It's a very, in student affairs broadly, it's a very um, non-diverse staff, people who do that and I would like some students (laughs) it's like they don't see themselves in this profession 
And I know there are many, like if you didn't enjoy your experience, you're very unlikely to go into student affairs. True. Um, uh, Symphony Oxidine, Deb Tob, and Derek Oxidine did a study on path, indigenous pathways into student affairs. And many, the, I think the prime reason indigenous people went into student affairs was because of the lack of indigenous staff that they experienced when they were in, in yeah. university. Um, I think the second reason was having a, a mentor who said, this is a profession and you know you should think about going into it and this is the kind of work you do. So I think we need more people identifying populations of color to come into the profession yeah. and to be aware of how our assumption of a student affairs personality impacts that mentorship. You know, you want somebody who's outgoing, who can handle themselves in good social situations. So I think if somebody who's sitting back and quiet, which I feel is an asset, um, might get overlooked for those positions or being mentored into something like that. Totally. Yeah, so our hiring, how we're mentoring people into these positions, how people become aware of them, how people become aware of this program. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So just generally all of it. <laughs> <laughs> One big gap. <laughs> but, yeah, little steps we could fill it. Yeah. Uh, one thing that our, our researchers notice about your Twitter game is uh, <laughs> we really enjoy how you proudly share and talk about your grandchildren. Uh-huh. And especially as you're an educator, I can tell that you're still learning mm-hmm. from them. So what are some lessons or new knowledge that you've learned from your grandkids? Goodness, that is not a question I was expecting <laughs> at all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm really quite proud of how comfortable they are in their skin. Oh. You know, just like, <clears throat> this is me, this is how I dress, this is how I change my clothes three times a day to be a different character. Um, you know, just comfortable. And I don't know, I think maybe being an indigenous woman in higher ed, there's, you know, the gaze is on you all the time. Yeah. But I think, you know, just how us would just wear that tutu out or go to school in it, you know, like, so what? Yeah. Right? <laughs> you know? And um, Nate, my grandson, is a really snappy dresser, and he likes to look good. So I think that kind of just being comfortable with yourself I think is a really important thing to learn. And, you know, I want them to see me as comfortable mm. and not be worrying about, you know, my appearance or how I might look to others so that they keep that really positive self-image. That's nice. Yeah, I've got a friend who, with her daughter, because we always deflect compliments mm-hmm. or oh, try to yeah. say something negative about. So they're like, oh, I like your hair. And you're like, no, it's a mess. Or I like oh, your shirt. Yeah. And you're like, oh, one button's missing. Like you always try uh-huh. to... Yeah. And so, reduce it. My Mm -hmm. friend, when her daughter would say, Mommy, you look so beautiful today, she'd say, Thank you, I feel beautiful, to try to encourage that Uh behavior of trying not to deflect or dismiss, but Mm. to embrace that. So, I think that, like, our kids can teach us so much when we kind of step into it. Hmm. Um, One thing we also noticed about your Twitter game was um, (laughs) you have a bit of a sidekick in your travels. So, can you tell us about Lammy? Yes. 
Lanny came into our lives, gee, maybe 10 years ago now. I was invited to speak at uh, State University of New York, New York at Oneonta, which is in the hills of eastern New York. And they have a camp program. It's a college for migrant um, students who've had their educations interrupted by, um, through working in agriculture. And um, did a campus tour. I, I think my sister did the talk. And they gave us a rubber lamb and a cow. <laughs> And um, I don't know, one day we were just fooling around with the lamb and we had it balancing on something and posted it to Facebook. And um, after that, people said, well, where's that lamb? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Lammy's gone on all my trips wherever I go, Alaska, any conference, um, gets a pick at the conference or, or my trips or to the grocery store, something weird, you know, and people will say, where's Lammy? Oh, hi, Steph. You know? <laughs> <laughs> By the way, hi. Yeah. And yeah, I've asked some people for um, to pose with Lammy, and I have a New York City cop. Really? I have a um, an airline pilot. Lammy is getting places. Yeah, <laughs> yep. Um, you know, some scholars you wouldn't think who would pose with a lamb for, you know. Like, who are you? And take some people have looked at the lamb like, what is that? But, um, yeah. So. so there's Lammy. There's Lammy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, a lot of this season we're trying to like explore the life of faculty. Uh -huh. So, And I was sharing that sometimes with, when you work within student affairs, we get intimidated to work with faculty. Mm -hmm. uh, if we apply to like master's programs or PhDs, we're like still navigating that relationship. So uh -huh. like, what would people be surprised to learn about the life of a faculty member? Surprised. Hmm. What would surprise us about faculty life? Well, I like to say we work all the time, but we can choose when we work all the time. Okay. So uh, some days are backwards, like Wednesdays are backwards for me. I go to the gym and stuff like that. Because I my brain, my brain will not work after I teach the night before, um, I do things like sweep and clean the house, like a Saturday morning kind of thing on Wednesday morning. Okay. But then I'll work tonight. To, because my, um, I finally get my brain back. <laughs> I am um, not an extrovert, so teaching, even last night when they just did presentations, exhausted it to no end. You know, so I had I'm just exhausted the next morning. So um, I think we have some control over our time that others don't. Like when my mother had cancer, I was able to go home and pack up my work, and when my daughter had emergency surgery, I was able to do that. So I think um, there is some control over that. You just have to be up front with your chair about if, if there's any emergencies or anything. Um, depending on the faculty member, I do like to talk to students. I like to hear about what they're doing. Mm -hmm. um, come to me with, if you have an issue in class or something's going on at home. Um, last fall, I had two students lose a parent right at the end of the semester. That's really unusual, come tell me. Yeah. Um, you know, we'll do an incomplete form or whatever. Um, these things happen, yeah. right? And I also have a student affairs policy in my, my syllabus. Because most of my students are in student affairs, you're gonna have to go off 
on an emergency first aid. Or you've had a day where you, or a couple days where you've been dealing with a crisis yeah. on your campus, in your residence hall, in your office, and you didn't finish that assignment. That's the nature of the work. Right? So I'm not going to penalize you for that mm -hmm. because that's what we expect you to do. A good student first person will put that first. The student yeah. comes first. And I have a phone policy. Sometimes you're on call even though you're in class. Or there's an emergency, you need to have your phone on vibrate. So just tell me ahead of time. I can work with that. Um, I do think there are faculty who are really hardcore. This is yeah. class, turn off the phone. You can't give extensions. But um, I think many of us are, are human. Yeah. And we understand. Just come talk to us. It's <sighs> nice. That's so nice to hear. That's so refreshing <laughs> to hear. Um, I feel like we could probably ask you a thousand more questions and probably embarrass yeah. you with the list of awards <laughs> that you have won over the oh, years yeah. and the very um, prestigious awards. Well, I'm even no saying well, what's the Courage Award? That was one thing we didn't come across in our in our research. Yeah, so um, <clears throat> NASPA, National Association of Student Personnel Administrators, something like that. Yeah. Um, Okay, so I think it was 2009, 2008. Um, NASPA was in Boston, and the theme was tea, have a tea party, cup of tea thing. Um, and when the original Boston Tea Party happened, they, the protesters who dumped the tea into the ocean dressed up as Mohawks. Ooh. And so there's all of these um, problems with that logo without any critical examination. Plus, certain class of people at that time drank tea. And so it was oh, really, yes. right, yeah. it was really complex. And anyway, so Daniel Torrance, who was um, a member of our, was it NASPAR ACP? It was ACPA, I'm sorry. Um, Native American Network at the time. Um, said that this was an issue and we worked we tried to work with their administration about the the problematic logo. Mm -hmm. There were and she led the charge with Molly Simmer Molly Springer and we just worked with them <laughs> for months, many, many phone calls trying to educate and the logo was removed with no explanation to the members. I mean it was a mess, but mm -hmm. it was a lot of emotional work on our part. Yeah. And um, there were meetings at ACPA that year, 2008. And um, I think some very good things came out of it, but it was so much emotional labor on our part. And is that when they put you in the Columbus room? Am I remembering this? Oh, story? that was the following year. Oh, gosh. Oh, that yeah, was I, the heard other... I heard about that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Not thinking Sorry at all, right? Anyway. And, you know, there's been repercussions after, and, you know, we're still kind of dealing with that aftermath. And I think it was, so 2013 at NASPA, she was, Danielle Torrance was diagnosed with cancer, and she passed, I think, in August of that year. Mm -hmm. So that's the Courage Award from that organization for standing up and doing the work. Wow. And do you think those... Oh, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't even want to say oversight. That's like more than oversight. Mm -hmm. But that does that occur because there's people missing at the table of planning these events? Like there's no, 
like racialized or indigenous people that are saying, hey, you know, maybe we want to rethink this theme. Like, yeah, so um, I think that's part of it. Yeah. But when it was brought up to, um, I don't the program committee for uh, ACPA in 2018, somebody actually said, well, there was an indigenous representative there. Oh, so it's like so it's fine because that, that person one person was there, said yeah, and one person out of maybe a dozen yeah, you speak up, you're gonna, and you know democracy is supposed to be majority rules, right? So yeah. we're already silenced. <sighs> but that I think the whole notion of the the invisibility that we're really not here yeah, um, there's not enough of us to I don't know worry about our opinions or. Yeah, I think it's really complicated. So yeah, yeah. All the more reason to try to help support our students to see themselves mm-hmm. in the profession to hopefully stay and be a part of our tables. Right. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, do we have time for more? Or? I think, uh, well, we had some technical difficulties oh, yeah. getting, so I feel like oh, we're yes. already over time. We're over time. It, we, we ate into our time trying to get this thing recording. Um, so maybe we can just go into our rapid fire rapid questions fire. And, okay. and start uh, to wrap up. All right. Um, okay. So you travel a lot for conferences mm-hmm. in, in your life. What are three travel essentials? Okay. Um, a shawl. Mm. I take my own soap and stuff in those little pill bottles that twist on the top. Okay. Um, or water bottle. Okay. That's a good one. I yep. Lammy was going to make the list, but that's... Oh, <laughs> just Lammy's a, like, in Lammy's for sure. Like Lammy's implied. <laughs> <laughs> um, next travel destination on your list? Is Cambridge, Massachusetts. Okay. Do you have a favorite meal? A favorite meal? I don't know if you'd call it a meal. I love guacamole. Mm. Yes. Sorry. Well, you know, it can be a meal, right? Yeah, yeah. you make a meal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Last book you read? Kindred by Octavia Butler. It's awesome. Okay. Do you have any nicknames? Well, people call me Steph, but certain people call me Steph. Mm. Yeah. Okie doke. That's how I feel about Nad. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. Or nads. Or nads, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I've heard nads. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, do you have any secret talents or superpowers that people I wouldn't do. necessarily know? I do. I am an expert napper. If I have teach me. Really? You just like find your spot and then boom. And if yeah. What? And if I have ten minutes to nap, I can sleep for ten minutes and wake up without what? an alarm. That... If I have twenty minutes, I can sleep for twenty minutes and wake up. I, I always thought flight or invisibility were superpowers that I would oh. want, but I feel like <laughs> that was better. Is now and you don't feel like groggy after you're done. No, I, damn, that's, that's all good. I need. <laughs> that's good. That's yeah. a tap. That's a <laughs> no. We're yeah. in, we're in shock and awe. That's that's pretty impressive. Uh, if you weren't a professor or in higher education, what would you be doing? If I wasn't, if you weren't, yeah. Hmm, that's a good question. Uh, I probably would still be a professor. I think, mm-hmm. but maybe like in native studies or. I don't know, something else. One more I have. Okay, so I noticed that you have, like, the U.S. Enterprise there. What would be, like, your favorite episode from, like, Star Trek or... So, Star Trek Next Generation. Generation. Yeah, which one? You don't don't remember the title, but, like, the theme. I don't think I could remember the title. Me too. I don't know the title. um, I just... 
Okay, so Data yeah. was on a planet where this guy was collecting things, and people, and things he shouldn't be collecting. <gasps> and um, That was a guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and at the end where he has, Data might kill the guy. I mean, he really has this moment where he thinks, I'm going to shoot this guy because he's a bad man. But he gets beamed up before he did it. Mm-hmm. But that whole thing about he really thought it through. And he was going to kill this man because he was such a bad man. Anyway. Good one. Yeah. Oh, man. I have to look up the name That's of That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like we could do, there's so many good lessons in, yeah. especially the TNG episodes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, now you got to start it on Star Trek. I know. Data ones are good. I usually yeah. remember Picard ones that I mm-hmm. are favorite, but Data's a good one. That's a good Data one. Well, and I guess yeah. because he was an android, all yes. of the emotional and moral stuff that he had to contend with was such a good device to yeah. bring those stuff into a narrative, right? Yeah. Anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a relay, so yeah. we want to know if there's folks who we should be interviewing next. Yeah, so um, Robert Hancock is um, Métis, or Cree, Métis, I think. At the, he's the academic manager for the Office of Indigenous and Community Engagement at UVic. Oh, nice. So he's on the uh, ACPA Indigenous Student Affairs Network with me. Um, and he's just a really cool guy and works with students and has a PhD, so I think he's that faculty yeah. student affairs Very person. Very cool. Yeah. Amazing. I can give you his e- email here. Fabulous. That's a really yeah. good recommendation. Good thank one. you so much. Good tag. Well, thank you so much well, for... Well, you didn't oh. ask me if, what course I would like to teach. I could teach any course in the world. Okay. Okay. I would base it on comics. What? Tell me more. So, like, <laughs> you know, um, of course, now I blank on comics. The guy with the little bl- um, tiger. Calvin and Hobbes? Calvin and Hobbes. Yeah. yeah I mean, there's some real lessons in there. Um, I think... Comics really can push you if you really, if you allow it to. We really analyze some of the hidden messages that are in those comics. A lot of times you laugh and then... Yes. Yeah. So I I would love someday to have a whole course just based on different comics. Oh, my God. I would love that. (laughs) That would be so good. Please notify me the minute that course goes (laughs) out because I would like to audit it. That's such a good one. Yeah. Sorry, I'm quiet because I'm thinking about it. There's so many... I know, we're stupefied. There's so much. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, well, I think that's time. So thank Thank you so much for your time. I survived. You did it! (laughs) Awesome, thank you. Nueha. Oh, Adam, it was so good to, like, relive that episode and that that interview with Steph. um, And I forgot our little nerdy moment uh, talking about Star Trek. It was nice. Yeah, I think we should start a spin-off podcast that's just about student affairs professionals geeking out about Star Trek The Next Generation. <laughs> uh, for those of you that enjoyed the episode and want to uh, make reference, give a shout-out to Professor Waterman. Her Twitter handle is at watersteph, S-T-E-P-H. Uh, and our handle is at nadsroses and at Adam Kewen. Please include the hashtag RelaySA. So thank you so much for listening. We want to give a shout out to Adrian Ross, who does our theme music. And also just a shout out to David Ipian, who started a podcast called the Student Success Exchange. So we want to um, just 
um, share with folks who are looking for other Canadian student affairs podcasts to listen to. It's a really good one to check out. Thanks for tuning in and uh, keep an eye out for episode three. Bye for now. Thanks for listening.